Hello, everybody, and welcome to this academic special of the Happy Hour podcast. I'm your host, Owen Smith, and for the first time ever, I'm alone in the studio. Now, for today's happy hour, we're getting a little less happy. We're talking about seawater and how it just keeps rising. Yes, this is a problem. Why? Well, there are millions of people who are currently living on property that will one day be underwater. It is now just a matter of when. But before we get into today's main topic, we have to first do, yes, you know, the happy hour, would you rather. For those of you who are new to happy hour, we usually start every podcast with a fun would you rather question. But considering the topic, today's question is more influenced by the topic of climate change and sea level rise. Here we go. So would you rather give up showering or stop eating beef? For the rest of your life? Mm, This may be an easy answer for some of you out there because some of you may simply not like eating beef. I mean, I really hope you all like to shower or at least do shower every once in a while. But there are never any wrong answers on the happy hour would you rather segment. But it also seems like the easiest answer may be the best. Did you know? that it takes 12,000 liters of water to produce one kilogram of free-range beef. So even if you give up showering for the rest of your life, that wouldn't even come close to the amount of water that it would take to produce, say, the steak that you eat for the next few weeks or months. Okay, now that we're done with that, let's get into the main topic for the day, which is about rising sea levels. Let's begin with the story, shall we? This story comes from Jeff Goodell's book, The Water Will Come, specifically from the epilogue. Here we go. In the late 1970s, UC Berkeley geologist Walter Alvarez stopped in Denmark on his way home from a research trip to Italy. Alvarez was hunting for evidence to support his wild and still unproven idea that a planet-wide disaster, such as a giant meteor strike, had killed off the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. The idea that the dinosaurs, and basically all other life on Earth that was larger than a raccoon, could have been killed off by a cataclysmic event went against evolutionary dogma, which held that extinction was a long, slow process, just like evolution. Alvarez, prompted prompted by his famous father, Nobel Prize-winning physicist Louis Alvarez, had other ideas. In Denmark, Walter Alvarez and a colleague drove from Copenhagen to Stevens Clint, Clint is the Danish word for cliff, so Stevens Cliff, which is a well-known geological site on the Baltic Sea. The rough white cliffs there are one of the few places in the world where you can see dinosaurs' last days written in a well-defined layers of limestone. About halfway up the cliffs, a thin, dark line of clay is sandwiched between the limestone layers. It was clear right away that something unpleasant had happened to the Danish sea bottom where the clay was deposited. The limestone below the clay line was full of fossils representing the teeming life of the sea, but the clay bed itself was black, smelled sulfurous, and contained no fossils but fish bones. During the time interval represented in the clay, the sea bottom had turned into a lifeless, stagnant, oxygen-starved graveyard where dead fish slowly rotted. Alvarez took some samples of the fish clay and discovered that it contained iridium, a rare metal that is scarce on earth but common in meteors. Ah, 
It was a key piece of evidence in one of the most dramatic scientific discoveries of our time. Today, even third graders know about the meteor that killed off the dinosaurs. So, what does this have to do with rising seas? Well, let's first take a look at Denmark, Copenhagen specifically. First off, there are bikes everywhere, and around 40% of the nation's energy is renewable. And the Danish Energy Agency says the grid will be 100% renewables by 2035. However, the city is not unfamiliar to the impacts of climate change. The city is already taking action to more effectively drain city streets in Copenhagen after increasingly intense rainfalls. The book mentions water squares as a solution. Water squares are basically low-lying areas in the city which allow for built-up rainfall to pool. The city is also building barriers across both ends of their main canal, which will close it off to the strait that separates Denmark from Sweden. So it actually turns out that Denmark is struggling more from incoming climate refugees, which are coming from Bangladesh and Nigeria. But Owen, what does your story about dinosaurs have anything to do with climate change? Well, first off, dinosaurs have dominated the earth for millions of years but they did not have the traits needed to adapt to a fast-changing world. Long before changes in the climate, driven by volcanic eruptions, had probably stressed many species and made them vulnerable, the meteor finished them off. But it's also true that for you and me, and everyone we know, that meteor strike was a very fortunate event. It was an evolutionary reset, one that allowed the mammals to thrive. Without this meteor strike, it is highly unlikely that humans would have come along and ended up building a city like Miami. Much less would they have submerged it by burning fossil fuels. But because we are humans, we think we are smart and adaptable, so we can ride out whatever comes our way, right? Right? Oh, so here's the deal. If we want to mitigate the impact of sea level rise, we got to do two things. According to Goodell, the author of the book, we got to stop burning fossil fuels and we got to move to higher ground. Heck, Goodell says we don't even have to stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow. He says if we do it by 2050, we'll be fine. We, wouldn't halt sea we would not halt sea level rise, but instead of eight feet by the end of the century, we would probably just end up getting about two or three. This would allow for less of a stampede of climate refugees from coastal areas. However, it is hard to have much faith that we will cut these CO2 emissions anytime soon. So... What are we looking at instead? Well, first off, in Norfolk, Virginia, city officials have collaborated with the U.S. Navy and university researchers to come up with a comprehensive development plan for the year 2100 to help identify which neighborhoods are most at risk. The Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact, which includes representatives of four counties in the regions, including Miami-Dade, has pushed local and state officials to rethink zoning laws and cut bureaucratic impediments that delay aggressive measures to combat rising seas. The state of Louisiana released an ambitious but largely unfunded $50 billion master plan to save its sinking coastline and help protect New Orleans. In the UK, the government has encouraged a gentle retreat from the coast through a managed realignment that encourages marshes and other coastal habitats to migrate inland creating a natural buffer against the rising seas. It also mentions in the epilogue that in Netherlands, 
They've been thinking about how to battle the sea for thousands of years and now are exporting that knowledge around the world. So Goodell in his epilogue mentions that wherever there is a city at risk of flooding, you'll likely find a Dutch engineer offering or just as often selling a solution. These initiatives are all important, but they're just the preliminary sketches of the changes that need to be made in the decades ahead. But what, are, what happens to people who are living in these cities? Let's take a look. This also comes from a section in the epilogue by Goodell. Well, people will notice higher tides that roll in more and more frequently. Water will pool longer in streets and parking lots. Trees will turn brown and die as they suck up salt water. Then a storm will hit and it will push an astonishing amount of water into the city. People who can afford will move to newer, higher buildings. Others will simply just have to move to higher ground. Roads will be raised. Solar panels will appear on top of rooftops. Abandoned houses will linger like ghosts, filling with feral cats and other refugees looking for their own high ground. Water will continue to creep in. It will have a metallic sheen and it will smell bad. Kids will get strange rashes and fevers. More people will leave. Seawalls will crumble. And in a few decades, low-lying neighborhoods will be knee-deep. Wooden houses will collapse into a sea of soda bottles, laundry detergent jugs, and plastic toothbrushes. Human bones floated out of caskets will be a common sight. Treasure hunters will kayak in using small robotic, robotic submersibles to search for coins and jewelry. Modern office buildings and condo towers will lean as the saltwater corrodes the concrete foundations and eats at the structural beams. <laughs> Fish will school in classrooms. Oysters will grow on submerged light poles. Religious leaders will blame sinners for the drowning of the city. And journalists will arrive on float planes and write about the return of nature. But one day, the city will be forgotten. And Goodell even mentions in his book that we may see human-like machines exploring the sunken city with no knowledge of what lives were like when the city wasn't underwater and what they did as their world went under. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of the Happy Hour Podcast. Peace! Peace!